All right, guys, grab your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We are in the book of Philippians for about seven weeks. We're about halfway through. By the way, kids, you're dismissed. Cody and Mike Daniels are going to lead you next door uh, to the, uh, the soccer field over there. So older kiddos, you can head on out of here. We're in a seven-week series through Philippians, and then we're going to be starting the book of Mark in just a few weeks. But we'll be looking at chapter 2, verse 12, to the end of the chapter. The Christian life is work. The Christian life is work. It is the work of allowing his perfect work to be worked out in us. Let me say that again. The Christian life is work. It is the work of allowing his perfect work to be worked out in us. And if that doesn't make sense, that's okay. That's what the whole sermon's about. How would you explain the Christian life to somebody? Somebody walked up to you and said, hey, you're a Christian, right? And you said, yeah. And they say, well, what is a Christian life supposed to look like? Because there's lots of different Christians out there. There's lots of different lifestyles that Christians have. What would come to your mind? How would you explain it? How would you express it? How would you paint the picture? What would the portrait be of the Christian experience if, if you were to explain it? What kind of words would you use? Probably words like joy, peace, love, hope, faith, happiness. Here's one word that probably wouldn't come to your mind. Work, right? I mean, we're Protestants. Works, that died, right? It's all grace, baby. Where is work, right? No, no, but work probably wouldn't come up. How would you describe the Christian experience? How should we think of the Christian experience? What should our, uh, our portrait look like when we think about what the Christian life should look like? When we think about, when we anticipate for ourselves even what our life's gonna look like or should look like or will look like following Jesus. When we call people to believe in the gospel, what kind of picture are we painting for them of what the Christian life looks like? You know, in the West, in, in Western evangelicalism, particularly in kind of the mainstream world, we've uh, many times been guilty of kind of reimagining the Christian life to be a little more palatable, haven't we? Like, we've been guilty of repackaging it, the Christian experience, complete with 4K cinematography and compelling music and the background and life-enhancing verbiage and fit, attractive people with nice teeth on the screen telling us about how much better their life is following Jesus. I remember being in high school before I was a Christian, and I remember I was really into skateboarding, and there was, um, there was this crew, uh, and, the, and their ministry was going around and witnessing to kids, which is cool, right? And they were like pro-level skateboarders and BMX uh, riders. And so they would set up ramps, and they'd go to events, and all these kids would come, and they would do all their tricks and show you like how amazing they were, and all they were these really good-looking, confident, cool kids, you know? And then, and then they would get up there, and they would tell you something that resembled the gospel, um, and what it usually was was like, hey, look, your life sucks, don't do drugs, you're going to ruin your life if you do drugs, follow Jesus and your life can be cool, like our life is cool. And you're like, oh, oh, okay, so, so is that the gospel? Like come to Jesus and your life will be cool? Come to Jesus and your life will be better? And, and I remember kind of just being confused by that a little bit. And then years later, the, the main kid, the main skateboarder, ended up coming out that he had a heroin addiction the entire time. And it was just very confusing to me. It was very confusing to me because as I read the Bible, I didn't really see this like, picture painted of come to Jesus and your life will be easier, your life will be better. I saw this picture of come to Jesus and your life's going to be hard. And I just couldn't reconcile those two things. They were confusing to me. When we paint the picture of Christianity, what do we paint? What's the portrait? What is it to look like? That's the question for us. What is the true portrait of the Christian experience to be? And the answer is actually very, very simple. Jesus' life is the portrait of what the Christian experience is meant to be. We might say, well, then what was Jesus' life like? What was Jesus' life like? Well, Paul told it, he told us last week in our text, if you want to go back and look at it, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. And this is an important section. The whole book of Philippians um, really hinges on this central feature of the book here in chapter 2, verse 3. 
Listen to what Paul says. This is review. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Cody did a fantastic job unpacking this for us last week. I'm not going to dive into it, but just notice here. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What is the portrait of the Christian life? The portrait of the Christian life is how Bonhoeffer best said it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I want you to, I want you to hear this quote. It's, it's a little bit wordy, but I want you to hear it. The whole quote of that right there is Bonhoeffer said this. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering the first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachment of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ union, in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the, listen, at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now what Bonhoeffer is writing there is he's saying that the beginning of the Christian experience is the cross. It's the moment where you choose to pick up the cross for yourself and say, I will now choose to enter into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by first rejecting this world and all that it has for me and choosing rather to follow after Christ. So the problem is, is when we sit and we listen to a gospel that says, come follow Jesus so that your life will get better, it doesn't happen. Your life in many ways gets harder, doesn't it? Any of you guys been walking with Jesus for a little while in here? Have you noticed in some ways it gets harder? Why does it get harder, Sam? It gets harder because you just got enlisted into a war. You have an enemy now. It gets harder because this world is not your home now, and you're outgrowing it. And because you're outgrowing it, it feels less comfortable here. You start to ache over sin and brokenness and death in a way that you simply didn't before. It's harder because you can't enjoy sin like you used to. Have you noticed that when you get saved? You ever get saved and you try, you try to go sin the way you used to, and you're like, I just can't do it the way I used to. It's not because I know now. Life gets harder what is the portrait of the Christian life? The call, the call to the Christian life is not a call to obtain greater comfort or prestige or attention or influence. Listen, it is a call to come and die, a call to mimic the life of a man who laid aside his rights and comforts, the comforts of heaven, to die naked, rejected, betrayed, and murdered on a cross. That's one of the least appealing messages I can possibly imagine. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. That's a hard message. That's a hard line. That's a hard thing to follow. But that is the picture that was painted by our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the picture that was painted by the apostles. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because what Paul is doing here in the logic of this book in Philippians is he's drawing our attention to the person in the life of Jesus Christ as the template for all Christians. He's saying this is what it looks like to be a Christian. You are to live a life of service, pouring yourself out in order to follow after the Father. And then what he's going to do in our passage today is he's going to unpack what that looks like in the Christian life now. As we behold this reality that Jesus was the servant, Paul says, now I want you to live in such a way that reflects that. I want you to live in such a way that shows that you really believe that. So that's what we're going to do this morning. This morning we are going to look at the Christian faith. We're going to examine what it truly looks like and hopefully we're going to come out with a better uh, portrait of what Christianity really looks like. So Paul gives a portrait of what true Christian looks like. He, he gives true Christian faith looks like three things and this is going to be the outline that we're going to work through in our passage. So if you want to jot it down, here it is. Paul calls the church 
to see the Christian faith as not one, number one, something that works out, number two, something that stands out, and number three, something that pours out. The Christian faith is meant to be something that, number one, works out, number two, stands out, number three, pours out. So first, in verses 12 and 13, Paul calls the church to work out, okay, to work out by engaging in active, obedient, serious faith. Then in 14 to 16, he calls the church to stand out by living innocent, blameless, thankful, united lives. And then in 17 to the end, Paul calls the church to be a church that pours out by giving three portraits of three men that poured themselves out for Christ. So let's just work through the passage together. First, let's see our faith as a faith that works out. Starting in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what is the call here that that Paul is making to the Philippian church? First of all, it's a call to continue in obedience regardless of Paul's influence. So Paul, his desire for the church at Philippi is that they would grow up and be a mature group of believers that continue to obey even if he's not there. Which, by the way, is one of the significant signs of true obedience. True obedience obeys even when there is no one there, right? True obedience does what is right even if the person with, with the eyes on you isn't there. Accountability is like scaffolding, right? When we first get saved, we're, we're very, very um, needy of other people and their affirmation. And as we grow as Christians, our obedience becomes more bedrock in our life. It becomes more deeper in our soul. It becomes what we do because we desire to please God, not just because someone is going to call and ask if we've done it, right? So Paul's desire is that their faith would deepen, that their obedience would deepen, and that it would continue. He's like, I'm thankful for your past obedience, but I also want to see future obedience. Future obedience is what he calls them to. The second thing he calls them to, and here's the word, the word he calls them to is work. Work. This is really counterintuitive. Because we are Protestants, we do not know how to think about words like work in the New Testament. Why? Because it is true that you are saved by grace, not by works. So where do works fit in the Christian experience? Okay, the first thing I want you to see in this passage is that Paul is calling us as Christians to work out. He's calling us to work out. It's like getting a gym membership on Christmas, right? You're like, what are you trying to say, you know? Paul, Paul's like, hey, you guys need to work out. You need to work out. Work out, what does that mean? What does he mean to work out your own salvation? Let's dive into that a little bit. There's some implications to what Paul means here. When he says work out your own salvation, first of all, he means it actively. He means it actively. It means that there's effort involved, perspiration. Okay, I I just want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. The Christian life is work. It is work. It is work. But listen to me. You are saved by grace alone through faith. There is no work in your salvation. You understand me? You didn't work for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Your salvation has been given to you freely by grace through faith, but where we err is that we assume that our sanctification is not by work. You say, what's sanctification? Salvation is when you get saved. That's where Christ accredits to your account his perfect life. Sanctification is called growing up. It's growing up. It's growing in Jesus, okay? Now, the question is, are you saved by works? No. Are you sanctified by works? Yes. Yes, you are. Not your works exclusively. Your works in concert with God's works, So Paul is not apologizing about the call for these Christians to work out their salvation because it is through our work that we grow and mature. There was a lie in Western Christianity that came out years ago. It was called the let go and let God movement. And the idea was basically this, that you just let God take over and he's going to sanctify you. Wrong. He certainly has saved you and certainly will save you, but the sanctification, you have a part to play in it. You have a part to play in it. 
Now, you could be gifted a brand new car. That's your car. Title deeds in your name. You could be given it, you could put it in the carport, and you could never drive it. In fact, you could leave it out in the rain and the sun, and the weather would beat it to pieces. Now, is that your car? Yeah. But you're not driving it. It's not useful. Okay? The reality is, is that you are called into a partnership in the sanctification of your own soul. I heard someone say the other day, the grass is greenest where it is most watered. You want a good relationship with Jesus? Work at it. Okay, you want a good marriage? Work at it. You want to be a good parent? Work at it. I remember the first time it hit me that if I wanted to be a good parent, I actually had to work at it. I just always had this stupid, naive idea that I was just going to be a good dad by accident. (laughs) Turns out I'm a really bad dad by accident. I have to work to be a good dad. I have to work to be a good husband. You want to have an enjoyable relationship with Jesus? It takes work. It takes work. Why am I belaboring this? Because we live in in a Western evangelical culture that doesn't ever talk about that. It's grace, 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 grace. Yeah, it's grace when it comes to salvation, but in your sanctification, we need to engage actively in the process. But don't miss this. The second thing Paul says, he says, you need to work out your salvation actively, but he also says it victoriously. Look at at what he doesn't say. Look at what he doesn't say. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, your own salvation. What he doesn't say is work for your salvation. What he doesn't say is work until you get salvation. He's very, very, very careful to not say that. Because if he said that, then we would be a religion that is works-based, and we're not. What does he say? He says, work out your salvation. What a weird thing to say. Isn't that weird? Work out for the thing that you already have. Work out the thing that's already been given to you. What he's saying is he's saying that the life of the Christian is not in order to obtain something, it is in response to something. Do you understand the difference? It's in response to something. It's like if I took my extra large, extra grande shirt uh, and I gave it to my son who's six years old and I said, son, this is your shirt. And he said, okay, and I put it on. Now it's his shirt, it's his. But he's gotta grow into it, doesn't he? Okay, this thing that you're in right now, this thing called sanctification, this Christian maturing thing, you're growing into the salvation that's already been given to you. Can't be any more yours than it already is. You can't be any more saved, any more loved, any more perfected in God's sight positionally than you are now, but we're growing up into the salvation. So Paul's calling them to grow up into the salvation that's already theirs. He also calls them, though, to work seriously. Now note this. He calls him to work seriously. He says, work out your own salvation, verse 12, with fear and trembling. Did he mean to put those in there? What are we afraid of? We're Christians. The wrath of God no longer abides on us. What are we afraid of? I would suggest to you that one of the greatest deficiencies in our cultural climate right now within Christianity is a lack of seriousness regarding the God of the universe and the gospel that has been given to us because of Jesus. We just don't take it seriously. Paul is saying, hey, Philippians. Now, this is a church that's largely moral and doing well. Paul doesn't really have a big rebuke for this church. They have nothing to be afraid of. Yet Paul says, guys, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want to read a quote from One commentator here, J.A. Moitier, he says, there is a fear of God which we know all too little and which we lose at our peril. A godly fear growing out of recognition of weakness, notice that, recognition of weakness and of the power of temptation. So what are we afraid of? I'm not afraid of God. I'm afraid of myself. Guys, I'll just be honest. The more I grow in Christ, the more terrified I am of me because I know what I'm capable of. I know that I'm a breath away from completely choosing the wrong thing and obliterating my life. He says, a filial dread of offending God. This is not the fear of a lost sinner before a holy one, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to him. When your feet hit the ground in the morning, do you have a sense of trepidation? that you are about to spend the next 12 or 16 hours on autopilot and that there is sin in front of you that you're going to have to deal with. 
that, the, that you have the, the ability to blaspheme God, you have the ability to shirk off the grace of God, that you have the ability to not walk in the spirit of God, is that something that you take seriously? I was just really convicted this week. Do I think about my working out of salvation seriously? Do I take it seriously? Is it something that I consider worth focusing on? Guys, listen, we're in the war of our lives. I mean, you may not all see it, but, but I do because I sit in the office and I see people's lives getting blown apart. Christians, marriages, they're getting blown apart. Why? Because we're in a spiritual war. Are we taking it seriously? I know I feel like that preacher up there just like pounding the pulpit on this, but guys, seriously, think about it. Fear and trembling. Do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? The last thing, the last thing I want you to see here too is that when Paul says to work out your salvation, he says it corporately. He says it corporately, and it's a little bit more subtle. You wouldn't catch it, but you have to remember that when Paul says work out your, fear and tr- uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's talking to a group of people. He's talking to a group of people. And the reason I bring that up is because you were meant to do this thing called working out your faith together. You were meant to do it together. Let me read a passage from Hebrews 10, 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Listen to this. Let us consider how to stir up, that's literally the Greek word frustrate, I love that, one another, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the same encouragement. Christianity is this thing we work at, and we work at together. I really think that somehow, and I know I'm picking on Western Christianity a lot right now, but I think it needs to be picked on, okay? Somehow in Western Christianity, church became a movie theater. I don't know where it happened. I don't know how it happened. Not here. It will not happen here. In 30 minutes, we're gonna turn our chairs. Why are we turning our chairs? Sam, that's awkward. I don't know people here. What if I have to say something? I know, because this is a gym. It's a gym, not a movie theater. You're here to work out, okay? Next week, wear spandex, baby. No, don't do that. I'm just kidding. Unless you really want to, you know. Trevor, spandex next. Okay. Um, Maybe those, like, long, thin strap things. Yeah. Um, This is a gym, and it's not a gym where you put your headphones in and you go do this and and, and wonder if anyone's looking at your biceps while you're... No, it's not that kind of gym. It's like CrossFit, okay? We're here together. We're going to lift things together. We're going to work out our salvation together. I am more and more and more convinced that churches have to figure out a way to get the body building the body or they will die because church is not a spectator sport. It's not a spectator sport. We're going out to fight a real war in a world where we don't belong and we, we, have, we have an enemy that wants us to walk away from our faith and I get like an hour and a half with you guys on Sunday morning. What are we doing here? Better not just be sitting and listening. We need God's word, but we also need each other. We need to work out together. It's important. That's why Hebrews says, do not neglect it. It's important. So, our faith is to be one that works out. Secondly, Paul's gonna say, our faith is to be one that stands out. It works out, it also stands out. Look at verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Let me just kind of summarize that, synthesize that down for you. Paul is basically saying, he's saying, church at Philippi, you need to be radically different, radically contrasted, radically polarized from the the world. If you're not, you're not truly witnessing. Now, I'm not talking about political polarization. But if we do not look weird to the world, then I would actually argue that our witness has gone out. Does anybody think you're weird? You're doing a good job. Okay. And for the right reasons. Okay. Some of you guys are just weird for other reasons. You know, (laughs) me too. I know. 
Why are we, why, why, why are we weird? We are weird because we are literally, Paul says, we are straight in a crooked generation. He says twisted. That's the Greek word scolios. It's literally where we get um, scoliosis. The idea is that the world, this world out here, and I don't just mean the physical things, the material universe. I mean the world as in the system of the world, Satan's world that he rules temporarily. That is twisted. It's contorted. It's, it's spun into to knots. And when you're twisted, what do you think straight is? You think it's twisted. When, when all you've ever known is twisted, you look at something that's straight and you say, that's twisted. Mark my words. You will, in the next 10 years, if not already, you will be accused of being perverted, unloving, and unintelligent, if you believe what this book says. You will. Perverted, Sam, really? Yeah, perverted, because... In our culture right now, we are so twisted as to what is morality or not that we would literally call someone perverted for standing for what God said is actually truly right. Someone asks you to go to a homosexual wedding and, and, and you say, you know what, I, I love you, but I love you enough to, to not support this unholy event, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna not come, and they'll say, that's perverted, how dare you? How dare you question the love that we have for one another? What's wrong with you? You're just uneducated, you're unloving. Now, it's really easy to stand for Christ when you feel like you have the moral high ground, but once the culture has decided that you are actually the immoral ones, that's going to get really hard. I'm not talking about being unloving. I'm not talking about being jerks. I'm talking about standing for what is true, being straight in a crooked and perverse generation. You will be lambasted for it. I just want to prepare you for that. Paul is telling these guys, though, that the reason that matters is because it is in that moment that you have witness. Why? He goes on to say, he says, because you shine like stars. And the reality is you look at the night sky and you see the stars, and what is the majority of the sky? It's black. The majority of the sky is black, but what is your eye drawn to? It's drawn to the light. The reality is that the majority of the world system that we live in is dark. The Bible says they love the dark rather than the light because the light exposes their deeds. So we are to be straight in a twisted and crooked generation. We are to be light in the darkness. And the greater degree that we hold that line, the greater degree that we have witness. I want you to see here, though, one of the reasons that we have such a separation, one of the reasons we stand out is because we are, notice the words, children of God. Do you see that? Do you see that? He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Why does Paul pop that in there? He says, one of the most unique things that makes you different than the world is that you are of a different family. You're from a different family. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 1. 9 through 13, pardon me, it's actually what John said. He said, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, notice he's the light. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Listen, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You're part of a, a different family now. You are part of a different, there is two family lines in this world. This cannot be more simple. There is Adam's family and there is Christ's family. When you are saved and you are baptized in the family of Christ, you become a child of God. Okay, well then what does that mean for everyone that's not saved? John chapter 8, 43 says... Why do you not, Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? Talking to the Pharisees. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Listen to what he says. You think Jesus is nice? You think he's nice? I think he's nice, but he's not nice to these guys. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Put that on a t-shirt. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The world system is crooked. It is twisted. It is scolios. And we as children of God are supported and sustained by the word of life is the word there that Paul uses. 
Now notice he says word of life, zoe. It's because the Bible isn't just the thing that we go to so we can smack people over the head with it. That's not the point. The Bible is life for the children of God. You turn on the news and it sucks the life out of you, doesn't it? Why? Because it's, it's, it's lost cultural narrative without hope. And then you go to the word and it's life to the soul. It's zoe, life to the soul that has been birthed in you. We go to God's word not just to be right. We go to God's word because we need to be fed with the truth because we live in a dark and twisted and crooked and perverted world that is calling good, bad, and bad good. And we need to know what the truth is so we can be a witness to the lost because you can't help someone that's lost if they don't see that you're found and that they don't know that they're lost. And you can't help them be unlost if you're telling them that they're not lost. Guys, the word lost is a great word. I know it's, it's culturally suicide to tell someone they're lost and that they need to believe what you believe, but they are. They're lost, and we love them, and we want them to be found. We want them to be found by the grace of God. And become part of this family, the family of God. I don't care how broken, how twisted, there is grace accepting into the family of God. And that's why we're here. That's why this church exists. That we might be a radical contrast, a radical witness, reaching and saving the lost. We're not here, out, we're not here to hide out in Noah's Ark, strap into good ship salvation. We're here to reach the lost. And we do that by being a family of God that contrasts to this twisted and broken world. Amen? When the world and the church are indistinguishable, get ready for purification, okay? When the world and the church are indistinguishable, so I'm not trying to be John the Baptist this morning, I'm not trying to be the voice crying in the wilderness, but the church in America is going to go through radical purification in the next 10 years because it looks so much like the world. We watch the same movies, we have the same divorce rate, the same abortion rate, the same pornography rate. It's all the same. It's not that different. Christ has called his church to be different than the world. Now, praise God when I think about, you know, I was sitting here writing this sermon this week and I was just thinking about our church and I was just thinking, Lord, are we different? Are we different than the world? If people know someone from Philippi, do they think that, someone, that, person, that person's different? I genuinely was encouraged that we are. There are, there are men in this, this church that rather than being like the world and just doing whatever they want, they are engaged in the battle against lust, engaged in the battle against anger, engaged against, in the battle against passivity. We have women in this church that are choosing to find their identity in Christ rather than their own body or their own success or how many people look at them uh, or how many social media clicks they get. We have marriages in this church that have chosen to stick it out. Praise God. Praise God. We have young people in this church that are investing their lives in the kingdom instead of something the world wants them to invest in. We have people in this church giving up their comfort to serve Jesus. And when I look at our church, I just say, thank you, God, that we are different. May it always be that way. And if it ever isn't, read the book of Revelation and read about the church at Ephesus. They forgot their first love. And you know what the consequence was? Lights out. And I don't mean lights out like they went to hell. I mean like their witness is gone. They're still Christians. They're going to heaven. If we forget our first love, which is each other and Christ and the mission that we're on, lights out, man. I have no interest in leading, I have no interest in leading a church that is ineffective. I have no interest in leading a church that looks like the world. As Christians, our witness is that we stand out. We stand out. We're different. Don't get divorced. Deal with your sin. Bring it to the cross. Believe grace. Press into the body. Get accountability. Work through things. Forgive each other. Stop grumbling. <laughs> this is the message of the New Testament. Church, hey, look different. Be different. God is purifying the church in the West, and right now it's starting with pastors. Have you noticed that? Yeah, because judgment starts in the house of the Lord. Our faith as Christians is to be one that works out, it's to be one that stands out, and lastly, it's to be one that pours out. And the remainder of our text here, and I'm gonna rip through this, Paul gives us three examples of what it looks like to live a life that is poured out for that, what Christ, that which Christ loves. First example is himself. 
In verse 17, he says, If I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What's Paul talking about there? You know, he's sitting in prison. He's in Rome, 62 AD. He's not really sure if he's going to get out. He's made massive investments into this church. He would love to get out and come visit these guys and experience the fruit and the return on the investment that he's made. But he doesn't know if he's going to get to do that or not. For all he knows, he's gone. For all he knows, he's going home to be with Jesus. We see that earlier in the book, right? And so what Paul is saying here is he's basically saying, Hey, look, if I die tomorrow and my life was a drink offering, which, yeah, poured out on the ground, I rejoice in that. I rejoice in that because Paul knew what we often forget, and that was that the life that was given to him was given to be poured out. Poured out for what? Poured out for Christ. How? Poured out by loving what Christ loves. What does Christ love? He loves his church. That's the call. Paul saw his life as something to be poured out. Like a priest that would pour out a drink offering next to the altar. Paul says, hey, I'm ready to be poured out. I'm ready to be poured out. And then we see Timothy. Look at verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned You might underline those words, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come too. So Paul gives us this little portrait, this little snapshot of his his protege, Timothy, this young friend of his, And he says, this Timothy is not like anybody else. He loves you the way I love you, Paul says. You ever have somebody that loves your kids the way you love them? It's usually your your parents, right? I love leaving my kids with somebody that loves my kids the way I love my kids. Nana and Papa, man. Granny Linda, they love my kids. Paul's like, I I love you, Philippi Church. I'm gonna leave you with the best hands possible. And Timothy, this young man, loved Philippi Church the way Paul loved Philippi Church. He's like, I'm eager to send him to you because he has shown his proven worth. Now, if you remember earlier in the book, Paul talked about those who preach the gospel from bad motives. Okay, he's contrasting that with Timothy. Paul has genuine affection for the church. He has genuine affection for what is the interest of Jesus Christ, and that is the church. Let me just ask you, do you have genuine affection for that which belongs to Christ? Do you have genuine affection for that which belongs to Christ? Could it be said of you that someone could send you to another believer because you have genuine affection, genuine concern? Now, let me say this. I don't want to relieve the pressure of that question. You're not Jesus. You're not going to love anybody the way Jesus loves Jesus. You're not going to love, and you're not going to love anybody the way Jesus loves anybody. But some of you have been given the gift and the grace of a particular affection for a particular part of of what Christ loves. Capitalize on that. What is it? What is the thing that, like Timothy, you have a serious heart for? the work of Jesus, the interest of Jesus. The New Testament calls us stewards of grace, ambassadors of hope. What is the thing that you look at and you go, Jesus, you love this thing so much and I care about it. There's a lot of things out there that Jesus cares and loves a lot about. None more than his bride. But when we care about the unborn, Jesus cares about the unborn. When you feel the weight on your heart of that, don't, don't shrug that off. God wants to do something with that. Timothy was a man that felt deeply for the church of Philippi. He was there when it was planted, by the way. Do you remember that? Timothy was one of the, he was one of the core four that planted the church of Philippi. He loved these guys. He saw them come to faith. And then lastly, we meet this man, Epaphroditus, verse 25. Epaphroditus, another, another portrait of the poured out life. He said, I've, I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. 
Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and then I may be less anxious. Interesting, Paul had anxiety. What was he anxious about? He was anxious about his spiritual kids. He wasn't anxious about whether his 401k was going to work out. He wasn't. He was anxious about his kids in Christ. So you receive, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor such men. Notice it says that. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here we get this amazing little paragraph about this man, Epaphroditus, that we don't know a lot about. But apparently... Paul says he was part of his missional community. He was a brother for the gospel. Apparently, he was the messenger that probably delivered this letter to the, the church at Philippi. And apparently, he had something happen to him that was a result of his caring for Paul and his needs. So maybe he was beaten. Maybe he was persecuted. Maybe he got sick. We don't know. But whatever it was, Epaphrodites was super stressed about it. And you know what he was stressed about? Did you see it? He wasn't stressed about getting sicker. He was stressed that they were going to be stressed about him. You see that? Epaphroditus is like, man, I've been, Paul's like, he's been so stressed out because he's worried that you're going to be worried. Guys, do you know what that, you know what that is? You know what Timothy's love and Paul's willingness to be poured out and Epaphroditus' just love for the church? You know what that is? Listen to me, focus. It is the love and the life of Christ breaking into the life of the believer. It is his life becoming manifested through the branches of the church. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing Jesus, the true Christian, the true perfect human life and what he cares about and how he thinks and what he does and how he acts, breaking into the lives of Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul. And our prayer is that Christ's life would grow and be manifested and break in and out and through our lives and the way that we love each other, the way that we pour out to one another, the way that we work out together, the way that we stand out together. That's our goal. That's our call. Now, if you're anything like me, you sit and you listen to a sermon like that, and you go, thanks, Sam, now I feel terrible, because I don't know if I can do all that stuff you just said. Anybody feeling that? You can be honest. Like, seriously, I, I listen to sermons like I just preached, and I'm like, yeah, 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 I should do that, I should do that, I should do that. Gosh, what am I, how am I gonna, when am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? Because I know me, and I'm terrible at this whole Christianity thing. Seriously, I'm terrible at it. You're like, you're the pastor. You should be good at it. I'm like, I'm not, okay? So I, I hear things like that. I feel that weight. Now, this passage could leave us unchanged if we only feel the weight and we do not find the will. Let me say that again. This sermon will leave you unchanged and only guilty if you only feel the weight and do not find the will. So where's the key? Where's the good news in this? Because I want to be like Paul. I want to be a drink offering. That sounds great, Sam. That's a great portrait of Christianity. How do I become like that? Well, the key is in verse 13. And you might highlight it because it's just such a cool verse. Verse 13. We already looked at it, but I blazed right through it. The key to this is verse 13. For it is... God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are three key ingredients here that you need to see. First of all, God works in you. God works in you. If you are a Christian, God works in you. He does. He works in you, period. Now, you may be taking the really long way around the barn because you're not engaged in the work of sanctification. You're not engaged in the work of growth and pressing into God. But even if you are, God is at work in you. I want you to see why Paul says that. Look, look back at verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, because God is at work in you. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting way to say it? Hey, Work out because God's working out. Let me put it this way. Let me try to make it really clear. We work to allow his work to work in us, which produces the best work. Let me say it again. We work to allow his work to work in us, which produces the best work. Here's your work, Christian. Your work is not to produce works. 
Your work is to work at letting his work work through you. Am I confusing you? Are you, are you with me? Okay, that's what work we do as Christians. It's called abiding. God, you're trying to work in me. And my job is to let you work in me. When we disengage from the work, we resist him. We resist the work that he's doing. Think about it like this. If you're a Christian, you are going down a rapid. Okay, God's going to get you where he wants you to go. I'm a good, I got a lot of Calvinist in me. I'm not full Calvinist, but I got a lot of Calvinist in me. God is sovereign. He's going to get you where he wants you to go. Okay, he birthed that life in you. He's going to raise that life in you. He's not an abortionist. He's going to get you where he wants you to go. Okay, you're going down the river. Now, it's up to you whether you want to dig the paddle in and try to go backwards or maybe just let yourself crash into rocks along the way, or whether you want to get engaged in where God is taking you. Our job as Christians is to get engaged in the work of letting God's work work in us. How do I get going down the rapid the way that he wants me to go? And when I say that, I'm not talking about finding the red line on the street where you're supposed to be in his will. What am I supposed to do? What kind of job am I supposed to do? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the work of becoming like Jesus. That's what he's interested in. The work of becoming like Jesus. He is at work in you to do that. Anyone who says abiding is passive is not abiding. It's hard work. When you get up in the morning, you got to work to trust. It takes work. you got to work to believe the gospel. It takes work. you got to preach that thing to yourself. Every day, every time you sin, it's because you're failing to believe the gospel. And the reason you're failing to believe the gospel is because you're not working at it. you got to work at it to believe the grace of God. As my mom says, you gotta learn to be the patient. God is the operator. You are the patient. You have to work to let him work in you. So Paul says, work out your own salvation for it is God who works in you. But notice, second thing, second key, both to will and to work. Isn't that interesting? The will is your desires. The work is your accomplishments. It's what you do. It's what you produce. Paul is saying that God is at work in you, both in your work and in your will. Listen to what J.A. Matier says on this. He says, in every action, there are two aspects to be considered, the will and the work. And one or the other of these is often our downfall. Either we cannot bring ourselves to choose what we know to be right, or else having chosen it, we fail to do it. Does that sound familiar? Totally me. Sin has corrupted both the power to choose and the accomplishment. But God is effectually and ceaselessly at work in you both to will and to work. What he means by that is oftentimes we decide what we want to do. You ever decided that you're going to do the right thing and then failed? You ever done that? God, I'm going to honor you today. Okay. The will is there. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Other times it's the opposite. The will is not there. What God does in his gracious work in the believer is he works in the will and the work. He changes the desire and the outcome. He's so gracious like that. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, Sam, I don't know how I'm going to transform into what we're seeing here in the text. God's going to do it. You just got to let him. You just got to let him. How do I do that? Open the front door. You know, it's funny, that, that classic high school youth group evangelism passage, Jesus is at the door knocking, and you're talking to non-Christians, like, let him in. That passage is to Christians. Did you know that? That's to a church, a church in the book of Revelation. Jesus is knocking at the door of the church, saying, hey, you're going to let me in here, or what? Am I invited to this thing, or you guys got this all worked out? How do I let Christ work in me? Open the door. Open the door to your failings. Open the door to your weakness. Open the door to your sin. Open the door to your struggle. Open the door to your insecurity and say, Jesus, work this stuff out in me. Because I can't. I don't have the will. Open the door. And the gospel, which is the transforming power of God, will come into your soul, will come into your heart, and will begin to change your behavior. Work to let him work. If you remember one thing this morning, work to let him work. Work at it. I'm making babies cry. Okay. Time to move on. And lastly, there, don't miss this last little thing in this phrase. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Note it, for his good pleasure. Guys, listen to me. 
He loves to work in you. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to be free from the shame that you feel in your past, the addiction that nobody knows about, the lying that you keep catching yourself doing. He wants you to be free from the fear and the anxiety and whatever it is. He loves you. It's his pleasure to work in you. Let him. My daughter, my sweet four-year-old daughter, came up to me the other day with a T-shirt half over her head, and she's like, Daddy, can you help me get this shirt on? And I said, No! You're so annoying! I didn't say that. Of course. It's my pleasure. It's my daughter. Love her. Of course, get your head out of the armhole. You're silly. (laughs) Five years, it's going to be like, go put more clothes on, right? (laughs) It's his good pleasure, guys. I know that some of you feel like, man, God's just got to be so sick of me. He's not. He's not. He wants to work. Let him work. He wants to work. How does he work? He works through the body. He works through the gospel. He works through the spirit of God. Open the door. That's all I'm pleading with you. Some of you guys in here this morning are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I would ask you to stop. And remember Paul's words earlier in this book, Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God, guys, God's really good at what he does. And as some of you feel like maybe God's not working and maybe God totally just checked out. Maybe he's working in someone else. Maybe he retired from you. No, no, he's really good at what he does and he will complete what he does. And may we never replace the portrait of Christianity with anything less than that. God help us if we sell some fake, watered-down, synthetic idea of a Christian life when this one is harder, but it's so much more beautiful. The life of letting the life of Jesus work in us. It's hard work, guys. I'll say it again. The Christian life is work, but it is the work of allowing his perfect work to be worked out in us. Amen? Father, thank you so much for Philippians in the way that it's cutting my heart the way that it's reminding me, God, not only of of how much I'm missing it, but even more so how good you are, how patient you are, how gracious you are with me. And God, as we now work out together, as we turn our chairs, we engage in conversation, we fellowship with each other, I pray, God, for boldness, that by your spirit we would minister to each other, that we would, like Timothy, that we would have genuine affection for each other in this room right now, that we wouldn't just be thinking about ourselves or if we feel awkward or what we're gonna have for lunch, but that we would be thinking about each other as we turn into these circles. Lord, would these questions stir up and bring about good conversation? If someone needs prayer, if someone is broken, Lord, would we come around and pray for them? And Lord, may we do body life right now, Jesus, in your name, amen.